continuing the study that Pastor Todd has begun in uh, Acts. This is a special study that he had uh, designated the month of July for. And I don't know about you, but I have appreciated it, haven't you? It's been good. He's been emphasizing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And uh, he's asked me today to carry on, and then Adam is going to carry on a little farther even next week. So we're glad that uh, we've been able to go through this study. I just want to begin reading in verse 17, and I'm going to read down to 32 in Acts chapter 5. That's on page 913 in your pew Bible, if you're using one of those. Acts 5.17. Scripture says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they had heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak, and they began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, They were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. This is God's Word. Let's just ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we need Your power. We need the ministry of the Holy Spirit among us. We need the manifest presence of Jesus. We need to ask that the Lord Jesus be the one who teaches us today and speak through his word. Uh, We recognize that uh, the words of a mere man standing in front of a group of people will accomplish absolutely nothing. But that if by the power of the Spirit the Lord Jesus has his voice today among us, then we will be blessed and then we will be helped. And so we just frankly admit that we need your help. We frankly admit that we've come here today hoping for your help hoping to hear a word from you. So help us today. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
you know, perhaps one of the most mysterious and misunderstood doctrines of the Christian faith is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It is no exaggeration to say, as Jim Cimbala says, that many churches, if not most churches, are unbalanced in this matter of the Holy Spirit. Cimbala points out that churches tend to fall into one of two categories. Some churches, he says, when it comes to the ministry of the Holy Spirit and teaching on the Holy Spirit, are cemeteries. They're cemeteries. He says the other churches who go off on the other end are insane asylums. Do you catch what he's talking about? You see what he's talking about, don't you? Many churches will teach you theologically the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but they don't want you to get too close to him. Because, frankly, it's a little scary. I mean, if you think about it, it's a little scary to have God personally present in your midst and directing things. If, if God starts directing things, if the Holy Spirit gets in charge, then we may have some problems. Things, strange things could happen, and we don't want anything strange to happen. And so the way we defend ourselves against that is we simply say, well, now that's, that's all right. That doctrine of the Holy Spirit is true. The Holy Spirit is a real person and all that. But now don't go overboard on this. Just let us handle it. It's going to be all right. Do not try this at home yourself. That's the cemetery church. The problem with that is that they're afraid of the Holy Spirit. They're afraid. They're afraid that things may get out of hand. But on the other side, there's the insane asylum church. And in the insane asylum church, all kinds of fun stuff happens. People might uh, roll in the aisles. Uh, they may uh, speak in ecstatic, unknown tongues. Uh, they may break out into spontaneous fits of uncontrolled laughter. Uh, they might even get down on all fours and bark like dogs. I kid you not. Now, we, all, we, know, we know that that's not the way to approach this either, don't we? Because common sense will tell us that the Scripture doesn't model any of that kind of thing. And so there are these two extremes when it comes to this matter of the Holy Spirit. We might either become cemetery people or we might become insane asylum people. But what we actually need is to be neither one of those extremes. We need to be people who have received this doctrine, who understand it in a balanced way, and who live it out on a daily basis. This is the calling of the church. And it's notable that whenever a church is healthy and the ministry of the Holy Spirit is active in the church, you hear very little about the Holy Spirit and you hear a whole lot about Jesus. Because the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bring us face to face with Jesus Christ at the throne of grace. Our whole Bible points us toward the Savior. In the Old Testament, God the Father pointed us toward Jesus, example after example, saying, He's coming. He's going to get here. When He comes, this is the ministry He's going to have. He points us toward Jesus. And in the New Testament, when we read our New Testaments with care, we find that the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church was to preach that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is King. And when the church is balanced, Jesus Christ will be exalted and God the Father will be exalted. We have before us in these chapters that we've been studying in the book of Acts this month, wonderful, wonderful chapters. Let me just say a personal word of appreciation 
to Pastor Todd for preaching on the Holy Spirit. My heart has been thrilled and I have been helped by the messages that he has been bringing this week. I hope you, this month, I hope you have too. But one of the things I thought about as he had asked me to preach on chapter 5 today was that we could go on in the expository way, which he's been doing, taking us through the stories, and that's a good thing to do. But I wondered if it wouldn't be good for us to pause today and do a thematic study on the Holy Spirit and just work our way through the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I'm fairly well convinced that in almost every church, if not every church in our day, there are many people in the congregation who, when we start talking about the Holy Spirit, misunderstand what's being said and don't really have an idea of what we're talking about. There are a lot of strange ideas that we might have about the Holy Spirit. You know, when you talk about the Holy Spirit, some people think of, uh, of uh, may the force be with you. You know what I mean by that? It's just kind of like, well, the, the Holy Spirit, this thing that these Christians talk about, the Holy Spirit, what is he like? Well, he's kind of like this impersonal force. And if you just kind of have this, you know, Luke, use the force, you know? If you just kind of can, can, uh, can put your f- f- mind in the right frame of mind, then there will be this power that's given to you. And let me just say to you, that's not the Holy Spirit that the Bible talks about. Other people, when you think about the Holy Spirit, we, you know, we, we, t- we tend to think uh, visually, don't we? We have to have some visual image in our mind. And the visual image in our mind that we have might be a cloud of kind of gas. You know what I mean? No definite kind of person, but just sort of an impersonal, cloudy kind of, of, uh, of image that we have in our mind. We have an image of God the Father. He's the guy with the white beard and the white robe sitting on the throne. We have an image of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the younger-looking guy with a brown beard who's got uh, scar marks in his hands and his feet and his sides. And when we come to the Holy Spirit, the image that we might have in our mind of the Holy Spirit is kind of a nebulous cloud, kind of a ghost kind uh, kind of figure. That's not the Holy Spirit either. And so we need to come to this matter to study the Holy Spirit and have an accurate understanding of who the Holy Spirit is, what His ministry is, and what His involvement is with us, so that when we come to these passages in uh, Acts chapters 1 through 6, we'll actually have a context in which we can understand what's being taught. And so bear with us today as we simply do a review of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And here's how I want to do it. I have uh, imagined... Uh, seven questions that people who are hearing about the Holy Spirit for the first time might legitimately have. And so we're going to work our way through it that way today. I'm going to ask the questions and then try to give you biblical answers to these questions. There's going to be a different kind of message. This is not a sermon. This is more like a teaching. And so uh, be prepared for the fact that uh, it's more of a teaching today than it is uh, uh, an exhortation. Before we begin our questions, let me just give you the big idea. If you're a note taker, you can put down that this is what the sermon is about today. The big idea is that the Holy Spirit has been given to every believer in Jesus Christ for our help. So we should all know and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's been given to every one of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ 
And the big idea is that we ought to take advantage of that and live in his power, walk in his power. Now, the first question that, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I love this. I love the, the, you know, the Bible gives you the answers, you know, if you just read the scriptures. You just, if you just read the scriptures. By the way, there's Randall and Kathy Mullins down there. Anybody notice Randall and Kathy? That's just for free. That's just extra. The Bible gives you the answers, doesn't it? I mean, there was a place in Acts where uh, uh, the Apostle Paul comes to Ephesus, and he finds these guys that are believers, but as he works with them, he says, there's something strange about these people. Uh, they don't seem to know exactly the whole story on, uh, on, on this. And so he asks them a question. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, Holy Spirit? We never even heard there was a Holy Spirit. What's a Holy Spirit? Maybe some of you got that same question. What's a Holy Spirit? Here's the first question. The first question is, who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? Now, in Christian theology, we believe that God is one God who exists in three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe that there are three persons, and if you're a person, you're, you have the capability of, you have intelligence, you have a will where you can make up your mind to do things, you have emotion. That's what a person is. And so what we say is that God the Father is a person. He has intelligence, he has a will, he has emotion. Jesus is a person. That's very easy for us to get, right? Because we have read our Gospels. He has all those same attributes. The Holy Spirit is a person just as distinct as God the Father and God the Son. He has all those same attributes. He has intelligence, he has emotion, and he has will. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not impersonal. Furthermore, he is co-equal with the Father and the Son. Please don't have in your mind the idea that there's some sort of order or ranking among the members of the Trinity. There is economically in the way they do their work, but in their essence, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are identical in their infinite fullness. The Holy Spirit has infinite understanding and infinite knowledge, just as God the Father and God the Son do. There isn't any difference in this. The Holy Spirit is personal. Let's just say it. The Holy Spirit, simply put, is God. Now, let me show you some Scripture. You've still got your Bible open to Acts 5. Look at the first four verses of Acts 5. Just to establish the fact that the Holy Spirit is God. He's not some second-class sort of citizen, not some second-class kind of God. Now, in Acts chapter 5, we, we read this, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and bought, brought only part of it and laid it to the apostles' feet. Uh, there's this, there was this thing that was going on in the early church where people were so in love with Jesus and so concerned and so caring for members of the body of Christ that were suffering real hardships. Some of them rejected by their families because they put their faith in Jesus Christ. Some of them uh, had lost all of their goods. And so the members of the body of Christ that had uh, some goods and they had some property, it was a, a, a thing that was being done that they would sell their property and they would bring the proceeds of the property 
and they would lay that at the apostles' feet, and they would say, this is an offering. We want you to use this for the poor people among us. Use it for the work of the body. This is a gift that God has provided. Well, Ananias and Sapphira had a piece of property, and he sold it, as we read here, and with his wife's knowledge, he pocketed some of the money. But when he came to present it to the apostles, he says, oh no, this is everything we got for the property. We got, this is everything we got. Yep, sold the property. This is how much I got for it. It's all for the use of the body. Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit, as we understand, rats him out, if we can use that phrase. Verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Listen very carefully to what Peter says. He says, when you lied to the church, you lied to the Holy Spirit. When you lie to God's people, you lie to the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on and says, While this property remained unsold, didn't it remain your own? You had power over this. You could have done anything you wanted with it. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You, didn't have, you could keep the money if you wanted to. God didn't require you to do this. Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? Why are you trying to pretend to be something that you're not? If it's part of the proceeds, just tell us it's part of the proceeds. Why are you pretending? And then he says this interesting thing. He says, you have not lied to man, but to God. Now, notice very carefully what Peter does there. In verse 3, he refers to the Holy Spirit... And then in verse 4, he again refers to that same person, but he gives him a different title. What does he call him? He calls him God. See, the Holy Spirit is God. That's who he is. The Holy Spirit is God. So the first question is, who is the Holy Spirit? And the the answer is, he is God. A second question that somebody might ask, ask the first time they heard of the Holy Spirit is simply this. Well, all right, the Holy Spirit is God. So what? Does it make any difference to me? Just because the Holy Spirit is God, do I have some connection with this? Is there some personal privilege that I've been granted? That's the question, isn't it? What is the peculiar privilege of every New Testament believer? The peculiar privilege of every New Testament believer is simply this. It is to have the Holy Spirit indwell you personally. Now, that's tremendous when you think about it. You think about the answer to the first question. The answer to the first question is, who is the Holy Spirit? The answer to the second question is, the Holy Spirit has come to live in you. Now, go home and look at yourself in the mirror and see if you see the face of the Holy Spirit staring back at you. But you know what? If you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you do. Because the Bible tells us that the peculiar privilege of the New Testament believer is to have the Holy Spirit come to live in us, to dwell in our hearts. Did you know that you have an advantage that the Old Testament believer did not have? 
You ever thought about what the difference is between the Old Testament believer and those of us that are New Testament believers? Do you ever think about the fact that our peculiar advantage is that God has come to take up residence on the inside of us? Do you ever think about the Old Testament believers, how they had to be kept on track? As we read our Old Testaments, have you noticed that all of the control over the, whole, the Old Testament believer came from the outside? came from the outside. It was from God speaking through prophets. It was from God's Word telling them how to live. It was from the tabernacle and the Jewish religious laws. It was from the king who ruled in God's stead. All of the pressure that kept Old Testament believers headed in the right direction, still being saved by faith, as you and I are, still being saved by faith, But all of the direction that God applied to his people in the Old Testament came from the outside. That's why the invading armies would come and invade Israel and invade Judah. Because God's instruments for keeping his people on track and drawing him back to himself, when they had gotten off track, came from the outside in the Old Testament. But it's not that way for us. We are under a different dispensation. What happens for us is the Holy Spirit has come to live on the inside. I wonder if you know that the Holy Spirit has come to live on the inside of you. You know, when you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you do something that you know is sinful, something goes wrong on the inside of you, can I get an amen? Something big goes wrong on the inside of you, right? You know why that happens? Because God's Spirit lives in you. And He's not going to put up with that stuff. You may be able to do that stuff, but you're going to be miserable. Because the direction now is from the inside out. It's not from the outside in anymore. It's now from the inside out. The way God has arranged things in our day is that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. God Himself takes up residence in the person who puts his faith in Jesus. Now let me show you this from Scripture in John 14, verses 15 through 21. And I, I won't, I'm just going to read it to you if you don't want to take the time to turn it up because it might take some time. Je- Jesus says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever Even the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him because He dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus says, you know Him. And I bet the disciples are sitting there saying, we know Him. How do we know Him? Jesus could just as easily say about the Holy Spirit as He said of the Father, Hey, Philip, don't you even know me? Have I been with you so long and you don't recognize me? You see, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus Christ. And so when we refer to the Holy Spirit, we actually talk about Jesus coming to live in our heart, don't we? How many of you heard that when you were in the first grade in Sunday school? That Jesus come, open your heart and let Jesus come to live in your heart. You know what? That's exactly what happens. He's the Spirit of Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit, but this is the Spirit of Jesus. He comes to live in us and to be with us. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How did he come to us? 
He came to us in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to inhabit us. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Wow. Everybody just look at your neighbor and say, wow. Yeah, you gotta, you got to have a bigger wow than that. Wow. Yeah, that's it. Now let's get some wows going here. Let me tell you something. This is tremendous stuff. Do you know what this means? It means God lives in you. It doesn't mean you're God. That would, be a, that would be a mistake. You are not God. I am not God. But God has come to live in us and taken up residence in us to make a difference in our lives. Think about the fact. Think about what this means. That if the one who spoke creation into existence with a few words moved his hand through the Holy Spirit, spoke, and all of this magnificent creation that we live in came into being. What does it mean to you about the power you have for your life to be able to live your life that the Creator has moved in and taken up residence in you? That is a tremendous thing. Do we believe it? Do we really believe it? We should believe it because our Bibles tell us that it's so. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus promised his disciples that he would not leave them alone after his departure, but that he would come to them again in, pr- in the person of the Holy Spirit, the Helper. The Spirit of God comes to indwell each believer to bring us into intimate fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And the result is the personal manifestation of Jesus to us, each one of us who receives the Spirit. Jesus takes us even farther In Acts 1, verses 7 and 8, he says to them, his disciples, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father had fixed by his own authority. What is he saying? They had asked him a question. They said, now, is this the time you're going to establish the kingdom? He says, no, no, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. The kingdom is going to come in when I say. You don't have to concern yourself about that, but here's what you need to concern yourself with. He says, concern yourself with this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He says, here's what you concern yourself with. Not only are you going to have my personal presence living in you to help you, but you're going to have power. Power to be a witness. Power to be able to tell this word. And people will be able to understand it. I wonder if we realize that it takes supernatural power for anybody to understand the truth about Jesus. If you're sitting here today and you opened your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, do you know that you are a miracle? Do you know that you are a miracle? Because in our natural condition, we can't even understand what this business is about Jesus. We don't have any idea what it's about. But when God confronts us with His Word... And suddenly it snaps into focus and it all makes sense to us who this man Jesus is and what it means to me. A miracle is taking place because the Spirit of God has applied the power of God to open our eyes to be able to see the truth about God. That's a miracle. Some people say the day of miracles is over with. God forbid God forbid, because if the day of miracles is over with, nobody else is going to be saved. 
It is, a, it is a miracle whenever anybody comes to faith in Jesus Christ. There's power that comes. Not only would the Spirit bring intimacy of fellowship with God and His children, but He would also give power to them. Power to live lives of powerful testimony to the truth of Jesus. And that's what we read in our Bible in Acts 5.32, isn't it? Peter boldly... Remember, this is the same guy... This is the same guy who, you know, a few weeks before or maybe a few years before had been cowering, afraid he was going to be identified with Jesus. And now he stands up in front of the Senate of the people and says, now look, you guys killed the author of life and hung him on the tree. And we are witnesses to this thing. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to those who obey him. Acts 5.32. This is where the boldness comes from, where the power comes from. The peculiar privilege of every believer is to have the Spirit of God come to live in his or her heart, bringing intimacy and power in their relationship to Jesus. Question number two, what is the peculiar privilege of the believer? The answer is, we have the indwelling Spirit of God in us. Question number three, when does the Holy Spirit come into the believer? You say, well, that's very interesting that we get the the Holy Spirit, but when does that happen? Did I miss it? When did it happen? Well, you might think you missed it. The Holy Spirit comes into the believer's innermost being at the moment of conversion. At the moment of conversion. Let's look at some Scripture verses that demonstrate this truth. Many things happen at the moment you're converted. You pass from death to life all in an instant. There are a lot of things that God is doing for you in that moment that you may or may not be consciously aware of. But there's a passage in Ezekiel, chapter 36, verses 24 through 27, that describes some of the most important things that happen to us at the moment of our conversion. So Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27 says this, I will take you from the nations... And gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And then the Lord says this. He said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. First thing he says is, I will cleanse your sins. I will take away your sins. How many of you are glad that when you got saved your sins got, you should hand up, you put two hands up on this one. Right? Yeah, there you go. You got it. You got it. This is a two-hander. Because when we got saved, all of our sins got taken away. All of our sins had been laid on Jesus at the cross. And we're entering into the perfection of His holiness that He sacrificed for us. So the very first thing Ezekiel tells us is, speaking prophetically, that God would do this work and He forgives our sins. That's what He's done. But the second thing is this. He says, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The second thing he says that happens to you when you got saved is that you were raised to new life. Did you realize that before you were saved, you were dead? No, you weren't under the ground inspiring cabbages in that sense, but you were dead. You were spiritually dead. You had no way to be able to interface with God. You had no way to be able to 
interchange with God. You couldn't appear in His presence. You didn't have the power to do that. And the moment you got saved, God raised your spirit to new life. He gave you life so that now the Bible makes sense and so that now you're, you're hungry for the Word of God again. He does that for us. That's the second thing. But then he goes on and says something else. He says, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He says, at the moment of your conversion, here are three things that happen to you. Your sins are forgiven. You're raised to new life spiritually. And the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. Holy Spirit comes. Notice what the text says. Our sins are cleansed. Our hearts are made new. The Spirit comes. And again, in John 20, 22, Jesus, on the night of His resurrection, appears in the room where His disciples are gathered together. And He says to them, It's me. And they said, We don't think so. Well, would you? And He says, No, no, look, look, look. Put your hands in the, in the, in the marks. Uh, give me some, something to eat. I'll eat a piece of fish. It really is me. It really is. And, and then they realized that it was really him. And they said, wow, it really is you. And then he said, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. See, this is the moment when they become Christians. They go from being Old Testament believers to New Testament believers. The personal, menace, the personal presence of the Holy Spirit comes to these men in this moment. The Lord Jesus breathes on them. You remember Genesis? Do you remember, do you remember Genesis? Do you remember how God created Adam, but he had no life in him? He had been shaped out of the dust. And then it says, he breathed on him. And Adam became a living soul. There is this ministry that only God can do. Only God can create life. Only God can create life. He comes to us at the moment of our conversion. We're going to talk about Acts chapter 2. You're probably questioning what that's about. But we'll talk about that in a moment. But for the moment, let's just content ourselves with this, that Christ comes by His Spirit to indwell us the moment we put our faith in Him. Question 4. What are the works of the Spirit in a believer? What does the Holy Spirit do for us? We could spend a lot of time answering this question. Let me just put it very simply to you by describing three crucial works that the the Spirit does in the believer's life. First of all, He gives us an understanding of God's Word. He gives us an understanding of God's Word. John 16, 13 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He's not going to speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak and He will declare to you the things that are to come. This is Jesus speaking before His death. After His resurrection, on the same night that He breathed on Him and said, Receive the Holy Spirit, Luke's Gospel describes that in different words. He says He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He opens our minds to understand the Spirit. So the personal coming of the Spirit gives us the ability to be able to understand God's Word. He he becomes our teacher. Secondly, the Holy Spirit imparts to us self-sacrificial love, a love for God and a love for our fellow believer. 
You know, on Sunday nights, we've been studying 1 John 3, verses uh, 1 John, and uh, tonight's passage includes these words, which really speaks to it. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of the son, His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. Christian love always goes wherever the Holy Spirit goes. What is this? It's not feelings. It is a self-sacrificial commitment to the welfare of those who belong to Him and to God Himself. So He gives us love. Then finally, the Holy Spirit leads us into a life of moral goodness. The Holy Spirit will lead us into a life of moral goodness. Galatians 5.22 tells us, The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. What difference does it make that the Holy Spirit dwells in us? It makes a whale of difference that we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Question number five. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? You've heard people talk about this. I've heard people talk about this. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Who are these people who are filled with the Spirit? Is everyone filled with the Spirit? To be filled with the Spirit simply means that we become consciously aware of His presence. To be filled with the Spirit simply means that we become consciously aware of His presence. Did you know that it's possible to have the Holy Spirit living in your life and you don't know it? It's entirely possible. There are many people who have become Christians who the Holy Spirit has moved in and taken residence, but they haven't been taught about the Holy Spirit. They don't know what to look for. They don't, they don't realize what's going on. All they know is that after their conversion, they felt that they had been forgiven. Or they experienced a lightness that the burden of their sin had been lifted from their consciences. And they found that they had a new power to resist temptation. And they found that they used to want to avoid church, and now they want to go to church. And they found that they used to want to avoid that guy at the office, that Christian guy. When I saw him at the water fountain, I didn't want to go anywhere near the water fountain. And now I want to go near the water fountain. What happened? What happened was the Spirit of God came in. But you're not consciously aware of it. He's there. He's doing His work, but you don't know it. Listen, in the Bible... Whenever we we see in the book of Acts somebody talking about being filled with the Spirit, they know what's going on. They're always consciously aware of what's happening. For example, Peter, uh, on the day of Pentecost, as uh, the crowd has come together to see what all the fuss is about, as Pastor Todd taught us uh, when we studied Acts chapter 2, the crowd has come together, and they're saying, what is this? And Peter says, oh, would you like to know what this is? This is what Joel the prophet spoke of, was uttered through Joel the prophet. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter said, let me open your eyes to what's going on here. This is the fullness of the spirit. These people are filled with the spirit of God. It's made a qualitative difference in their lives. And they know it. And I know it, and I'll tell you about it. And this is what's going on. To be filled with the spirit simply means we become consciously aware that there's a new person inside the old skin. That's what it means. Now, along with that comes questions. There come these questions about what is this baptism of the Spirit thing? That's question number six. 
We've heard that some people get baptized with the Spirit. What do you think that is? Well, let me just suggest to you that if the fullness of the Spirit is conscious recognition that the Spirit lives in you, the baptism of the Spirit is just the initial filling of the Spirit in the life of a believer. It's that moment when you wake up to the fact that the Holy Spirit is there. He becomes real to you. And you say, wow! And it's an identification with Christ, and it's an identification with the Holy Spirit. It's just that the Holy Spirit comes and fills you for the first time. There are a couple of instances of this in Scripture. In Acts 9.17, we might read about Paul receiving the Spirit when Ananias prayed for him. <clears throat> Acts 2.4, detailing here the corporate coming, or the coming of the Spirit on the church at Pentecost. Now, wait a minute, you said. Weren't we, they already filled with the Spirit? Didn't they get filled with the Spirit as you told us in John 20? Yeah, some of them did, but not all of them. In Acts 2.4, we have the fact that all of the individuals in the church were being filled. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as God gave them utterance. For some of them, it was a baptism. For others, it was a refilling. For all of them, it was a joy. Because the gift of the Spirit is joy. The gift of the Spirit is joy. Now, this raises the question about this matter of spiritual gifts, doesn't it? By the way, we're getting ready to go into question seven. Are you ready for question seven? Look at your neighbor and say, I'm ready. You ready for question seven? Question seven. What about spiritual gifts? What about spiritual gifts, especially this matter of speaking in tongues? You're going to notice in the verse that we read from Acts 2.4, that the phenomenon of the disciples speaking in tongues is mentioned. And a lot of people in our day have questions about this, so we need to speak briefly on the matter of unusual phenomenon. Bible models the fact that this coming of the Spirit is often accompanied by unusual phenomenon. And it tells us that this sometimes accompanies this filling. And, but there's a lot of controversy about that in our day, isn't it? Some people say, yeah, that stuff still happens, and other people say, no, it doesn't. Now, it'll be helpful for us as we look through Acts 2.4 to realize that the phenomenon that came were never repeated. The, the phenomenon that came with this initial filling of the church was uh, the rushing wind, uh, the uh, tongues of fire, and speaking in other languages that they had not studied or been taught. In other words, Carol suddenly begins to speak in Spanish. Right? Now, it's obvious that that is not what Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians. He's dealing with an ecstatic tongue. Nobody knows what the speakers of tongues in Corinthians are dealing with. So it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. The phenomenon that we're given in Acts 2 occurred one time and never occur again. We do not see the rushing wind again. We don't see the tongues of fire. And we do not see people speaking in a known language again, to my knowledge. So it's helpful for us to notice the fact that those were temporary things. But the thing that was not temporary was the power that came upon the believers. That we see everywhere in Scripture. And to this day, you can expect power to come upon you in the way we've been talking about. These phenomenon are nowhere repeated in Scripture, but the powerful witness of the Spirit filled believers everywhere 
And that is described over and over again. The book of Acts is filled with examples, seemingly on every page, of believers who have power to be able to share the message about Jesus. Some present-day people assert that these sign gifts are still given, and others say, no, they're not. So what are we to do about this? Well, I would suggest that we can rest our hearts in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, which tells us that the Holy Spirit assigns the gifts as He sees fit. It says, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as He wills. In other words, you don't have to worry about it. The Holy Spirit gives the gifts out according to His understanding and His knowledge. If He wants you to have a gift, He'll give it to you. And if you don't need that gift, He won't give it to you. And so it's best for us simply to leave this in the hands of the... Do you think you can trust God to figure out what's best? How many of you think you can trust God? Two hands again. No, you've got to have two hands on this one. You can trust God. Ooh, we went Pentecostal for a moment, didn't we? Do that again. That was good. That was good. All right, there you go. That's good. That's good. You can trust God to do the right thing. How many of you know that you can trust God to do the right thing? God's going to do the right thing. You don't have to get your, 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 your shirt in a knot about whether this is still given or not. Just relax. Trust God. He's going to do the right thing. That'll be all right, won't it? We can, we can deal with that, can't we? He'll do that. He always does right. You may not understand it, but He always does the right thing. You can trust Him. You can relax in that. So what's the conclusion of the matter? Here it is. Who is the Holy Spirit? He is God. To whom has He been given? He's been given to you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. What difference does it make that He's in your life? Much in every way. So let me just simply close with a challenge. Are you aware of the Spirit's presence in your life? Are you relying on His power? And if not, why not ask God to make Him real in your experience? Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you would entrust us with such an awesome gift. Who are we that you would come through your Spirit to live inside of us? We are pieces of dust. We're specks of dust on the surface of a blue marble in your universe. And yet the very, the very Spirit of God comes to indwell us and live in us. It's an awesome gift. It's an, he is an awesome gift. Thank you for this graciousness that you poured out on us. Help us, Lord, to be conscious of the fact that the Spirit lives in us and to know the presence of Jesus personally. Help our hearts to be warmed when we look into your Word, when we sing your songs, when we pray to you. Let us know that you are with us so that our relationship with you does not remain a long-distance relationship, but becomes the thing we've been promised, which is a personal relationship. So help us, Lord. We're just plain people. We can't do this on our own.
We don't have any, we don't have any way to provoke these things. All we can do is see what your Bible tells us and then ask you to do what only you can do. And so help us to be that kind of people and to walk in the Spirit. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand up. We're going to do one.